this week, our little clan traveled to Indiana to celebrate the 4th with Mary Beth's family. It was a great trip filled with classic American activities. There were fireworks. There were board games. There were slumber parties with cousins. There was barbecue. But on the way home, we were routed from Evansville, Indiana to Charlotte, North Carolina in order to return to Santa Barbara. <laughs> 10 hours of flight time. I don't know how long the, the uh, total trip, but a long, long time. <laughs> it's actually our second time being routed through, through there. And when we got to Charlotte, we had about 35 minutes between our planes. So we grabbed our kids and all our bags and made the mad dash across Charlotte Airport, which is not an easy airport to cross. It is uh, it's fairly convoluted. And as I'm, we're hauling all this junk, all the baby gear, all the kids' gear, all the backpacks, all the stuff across this airport and, lo- and sleeping children on our shoulders, I couldn't help but reminisce on our honeymoon in which Mary Beth and I went to Bali for a week with one carry-on backpack. That's all we had between both of us. In fact, it was the same backpack that Mary Beth carried, lugged through the airport, stuffed full of lovies and snacks and all sorts of stuff. And then some. I do love that economic approach to luggage, to travel. Some people take that approach to the next level with a phenomenon known as ultralight backpacking. Ultralight backpacking is a style of wilderness travel that emphasizes carrying the lightest and simplest gear possible for a given trip. A good example of this ultralight approach is a man by the name of Clint Bunting. Clint Bunting has traveled over 30,000 miles on trails in the United States. He does this with an eight-pound pack. He wears six-ounce trail shoes. He takes no flashlight or headlamp. He just has this little like LED light that, he, that hangs around his neck. There's no hip belt on his backpack. His toothbrush is cut off, except for the very part that you use for brushing. (laughs) He carries no water filter or any treatment. He simply drinks straight from the streams where he travels. As he approaches everything, as he starts one of these trips, he begins with the question, what can I do without. That is the ethos of this ultralight backpacking approach. My favorite uh, ultralight pioneer was a woman named Grandma Emma Gatewood, who through-hiked the Appalachian Trail in 1955 with only a duffel bag containing an army blanket, a plastic sheet, an umbrella, and she wore Converse sneakers. At the age of 67, this mother of 11 
grandmother of 24 became the first woman to hike the 2,168-mile Appalachian Trail in one season solo, alone. Toward the end of her life, uh, someone asked Grandma Gatewood what she thought of the latest lightweight backpacking gear, and she shrugged and offered this advice. Make a rain cape, make an over-the-shoulder sling bag, buy a sturdy pair of Ked's shoes, stop at local groceries to pick up Vienna sausages, and everything else you need will come to you. It sounds a lot like the advice that Jesus gives his disciples as he sends them out on their own. Take nothing except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals, but don't wear two tunics. Don't bring that extra jacket. I love this advice. Most people would think that these items were essential. But Jesus has a different idea. He is intentionally sending the disciples without everything that they need. He does this so that they will be at the mercy of others. Biblical scholar Rolf Jacobson believes that this approach, this approach to receiving hospitality, is the single most important skill that Christianity must recover. It's worth noting that Rolf Jacobson lost both of his legs to cancer when he was in high school, and he gets around by wheelchair. Jacobson understands the importance of hospitality firsthand, and he is also steeped in the writing of theologian Henry Nouwen. Nouwen sees hospitality as central to the Jesus way. For now and hospitality means the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Now and clarifies that hospitality is the movement in which we become less and less fearful and defensive and more and more open to the other. Less and less fearful, more and more open. We all bring baggage to our interactions, whether it's in our daily life, just our our frenzy to get from thing to thing, to get through the day, or in our deeper interactions where we struggle to build trust and understand the people beside us. Clint Bunting, the the ultralight packer that I mentioned earlier, he says that most people pack their fears. They fill up their bags with the things that they're afraid of. We pack so much that we cannot see what is around us. We have no room for people to enter, no room for hospitality. We are so cluttered that we become trained in hostility rather than hospitality. Now one clarifies that hostility doesn't mean just violence or ill will to our neighbor. For now one, even the lack of space can be hostile. When we are cluttered, afraid, 
busy. We can only be hostile to the people that we meet along the road. This is at the heart of this passage about Jesus in his hometown. That line, a prophet is not without honor except in her hometown. Jesus' hometown folks have conceptions of who Jesus is. They think they know him, right? Is this not the carpenter? Isn't that his sister over there? Aren't you the daughter of Mary, the son of Mary? They're so full of their knowledge that they cannot accept Jesus as he is. Like the folks of Nazareth, I find I judge those closest to me most. The greatest challenge to hospitality for me is with those I love. It's hard to find space as I'm busy going about my day. It made me think about um, when Mary Beth and I first got married and uh, we were, we were uh, expecting uh, a baby, uh, expecting Henry. Uh, I had this room in the house we rented in Santa Monica that was full of instruments. And uh, kind of the, the centerpiece of this was an, a Wurlitzer electric piano. Do you guys know what those are? It's, yeah, it's kind of like the hurt, hurt it through the grapevine sound. Um, it's, a, it's a cool instrument. I loved it. I used to play it all the time. I played it on my own, then I played it in bands, and I'd use it for recordings, and it was something I really, really loved. And then we decided that room with the instruments was going to be the baby room. And it was time to clear out some space. And it was time for the Wurlitzer to take a hike. <laughs> and so I took it and I sold it to someone. And from the day that I sold it, I have not regretted it once. I haven't thought about it at all. <laughs> because I've made that space. I didn't, you realize you don't need the things, you don't need as much as you think you do. At least that's my experience. It helped me get in touch with, with what is essential. And certainly the space of watching our little boys grow up and seeing that love grow. But as we go through this life, we have to ask, what is essential? What is essential to the Jesus way? What matters most in the God-love life? It's not judgment. It's not fear. It's not pride, wealth, and any of that junk. It's relationship. What Latin speakers called caritas. Greek speakers called agape. English speakers try love or charity or hospitality. The point is we live in interdependence. We're all in this thing together, as we sing sometimes here. When we give or show or love or live into that hospitality, that love empowers us and empowers the people that we touch along the way. So for people that do these long hikes like the Appalachian Trail and now the Pacific Crest Trail and other other places, other long trails like that, there's a phenomenon known as trail magic. Have you guys heard about trail magic before? You guys know what it is? So what, what it entails is that there are spots in those trails where, where people have to cross close to kind of an urban setting, and they're often drop boxes, places where, you, where people all congregate as they're making their way through. And trail magic is when folks... This is not, it's not exclusive to this, but, but when, when, you, when folks 
of their own will and, and love just go and leave a little treasure for somebody, like leave a little food or leave a little something that's going to help them on their journey. Or sometimes it's, it's people that are deciding that it's something they can do without. But they go and leave a little magic for someone to find. Leave a little ice cream, like sitting out. <laughs> sometimes it really is ice cream. Uh, and boy, if you've been hiking like that, how about that, that ice cream? I love that notion of just these random acts of kindness, these random acts of hospitality. Somewhere in our lives, God is calling us to resurrect hospitality, to make some space, to leave a little magic. Who is in need of our resurrected hospitality? Maybe it's our partners. Maybe it's our neighbors. Maybe it's our friends. Maybe it's a relative that you used to be compassionate and gentle and welcoming to, but over time that hospitality has died or faded. Maybe you need to practice hospitality toward yourself, to make some space for yourself, be kind to yourself, to recover that sense of self-compassion. As we step into this period of this planet, we know that there's plenty of room for hospitality. There's room for hospitality towards victims of events like fires and floods. There's hospitality toward those who are fighting with the struggles of immigration law. There's hospitality to the rest of the biosphere as we move through the sixth grade extinction on this planet. There's hospitality to people we know, and there's hospitality to people that we do not like. <laughs> now and suggests that hospitality is inherently divorced from agenda. He says, hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. I love that. Hospitality as space. In the, two th in the year 2000, the UK passed uh, the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, which gave any citizen the right to, uh, the conditional right to access areas of uncultivated private land. Some people call this the right to roam or the right to ramble, which is the term they use when advocating to get this. The idea is that anywhere in England, you can walk wherever you want. As long as it's not farmland, you can, you can go by, and if you're only passing through, if you're on your way through, you, can, you have the right to ramble. You have the right to go past fences. Don't fence me in. It reminds me of the effect of barbed wire fences on buffalo populations here in the United States. Do, are, do, are you guys aware of this? That uh, prior to the introduction of barbed wire and, and massive hunting as efforts, American bison roamed the countryside. Their hooves played a vital role in the ecosystem by aerating the soil. They allowed for other plants to grow, for nat native plants to grow and to flourish, which is in contrast to cattle hooves which contributed to the drying and compaction of the soil all across the plains. Here, the hospitality of the bison was limited and the ecosystem suffered. Again, we live in deep interconnection. We never know how much our actions affect those around us or how fertile the ground can grow through our steps. Of course, I'm almost done. Of 
course, the primary way in which we encounter hospitality is as recipients. Whether we are aware of it or not, every moment of our lives is an encounter with divine hospitality. In traditional church language, we call that divine hospitality grace. The Episcopal Book of Common Prayer defines grace as God's favor toward us, unearned and undeserved. That unearned part is important. It's not something we do or earn. It is a grandeur beyond our comprehension, an interdependence that exceeds our understanding like feet grinding the soil of an eternal, expansive landscape. Here, we walk together. Amen. Go get some ice cream. I see people are hot. Get, go get, get some water. Get some water and then we'll settle in.